Welcome to the Get Healthier Podcast with Rena Jadhav, who's on a quest to uncover breakthroughs and cures in living longer, healthier, and happier. Genetic testing, stem cells, rattling, talking to Silicon Valley geniuses and the best doctors in the world about the hottest products and programs to make you live an amazingly joyful life. Are you ready? Now, here's your host, Rena. Hi, everyone. I am super excited you're tuning in today because it means you want to live longer, healthier, and happier, and are doing something about it, like tuning into this podcast. All right, so today we're going to talk about how to get healthier. Why? Because we Americans are getting sicker. We are more sick than Europeans and people in other countries. In fact, did you know that since the mid-1990s, the number of Americans suffering from chronic disease, such as heart, asthma, cancer, diabetes, has nearly doubled. And our lifespan, it's plunged. Makes no sense to me. Aren't we making amazing tech innovations and advancements? Why are we getting sicker? Now, for me, as some of you know, it's not a statistic. I'm recovering after 18 months of a severe health crisis where I got down to 90 pounds on a 5'7 frame. And it worries me that I'm surrounded with friends whose teenage kids are sick in the hospital. I've got friends whose kids have cancer, Crohn's, colitis, and I've got friends themselves that are pretty sick. So my mission has been, I want to dig deeper into what is causing this epidemic and how can we stop it. And that's what this episode is all about. Our guest today, Sachin Patel, is a self-proclaimed guardian of truth and warrior of light. I love it. His philosophy which I truly believe is that the doctor of the future is the patient. It's you. You are the doctor. And Sachin is doing everything to help patients stay out of the medical system. He founded the Living Proof Institute, which has a team of expert practitioners helping patients recover completely from chronic diseases, including diabetes, IBS, adrenal dysfunction, thyroid issues, and more. Sachin, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor. Oh, our our pleasure. Now, let's start with your personal transformation, your journey, and why you decided to start the Living Proof Institute. You know, thanks for asking. So I would say that I'm still in transformation. I, I never think of myself as being in my final destination, and I look at myself as a work in progress, but I can tell you some of the most, you know, kind of shifting experiences that I've had. And you know, the, the shifts continue. So we get bounced around in life and that's just how things go. And hopefully we're bouncing in the right direction towards where we want to end up. And I would say for me, the biggest thing that happened to me in my career, I started off as a chiropractor working in a sports clinic. So working with pretty physically active people and, you know, people that were complaining that they couldn't run a sub three hour marathon. So that's where I started off in, in my clinical practice. And one day I was on the news. And as a result of being on the news, we had all these people call in. None of them had you know, tennis elbow, which is what the story was actually about. None of them had athletic injuries. In fact, these people were all suffering from things like chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, uh, autoimmune conditions, you know, debilitating arthritis, all kinds of health issues that the medical system didn't provide them answers for. And really, I didn't know what to do for them either, but I didn't even know where to send them on top of that because they'd already seen every specialist and tried every drug. So what I started doing is I started researching on my own to see what I could do to help these people because at the time it wasn't very much, it was almost nothing. And then I discovered functional medicine and functional medicine changed my life. So I, I took the course as a way to just kind of see what, what else was out there. What, what, in what other capacity can I help this audience that obviously isn't finding answers? 
instead of just helping people run faster. So that's when I started my journey. And as a result of learning functional medicine, I, I apply it to myself and my family and it's transformed their lives. And then I realized that this, I, I can't keep this a secret. And the world could live with it without people that are running sub three hour marathons, but it can't live without, you know, the people who need us the most. And a lot of times that's our parents, it's our grandparents, it's people we love and people we care about. And guess what? Uh, to me, that became more important to solve that problem. And that's when I started Living Proof Institute because there was no real model of healthcare out there that I could subscribe to that wasn't outdated. And so we created a new healthcare paradigm from the ground up. And that's what we do now. So it's pretty cool. And I teach it to other practitioners all over the world. And it's allowed us to, you know, truly touch the lives of tens of thousands of people. And it's, it's awesome. So that's, that's been my transformation and, you know, how I've kind of come to where I am right now. And our mission continues to grow. And thanks to podcasts like this and interviews like this, uh, you know, connecting us with audiences like yours that are ready to make some transformational changes. You know, it's been growing and we're, we're pretty happy about that. So thank you. Oh, that's great. So you talk about the new paradigm of healthcare. What What is that? And what is it about functional medicine that got you so excited? And how is it different from the old model of healthcare? Well, the first thing that we have to understand is that no disease, especially chronic disease, develops in isolation. And what I mean by that is when somebody has diabetes, the same blood that has has created diabetes in this person's body is not creating health everywhere else, right? The same blood goes everywhere. So the same blood that's destroying your thyroid is the same blood that's destroying your liver. So just by through an evolutionary or creation process, our body, there would never be a scenario where something is good for one organ and then bad for another organ. That would be anti-survival. So when something is good for one organ, it's good for the other. By default, it should be good and healing for every other organ in the body, which means that if our health is moving in the right direction, then every organ and system is healing in our body. But if our health is moving in the wrong direction, then the consequence is every system is being decayed at a different rate. And every system in our body has a different reservoir and tolerance level. So the thyroid is typically where you see problems first because the thyroid has a low tolerance for these types of imbalances, whereas the digestive system may have a higher level of intolerance. And so the thyroid symptoms might show up before the, thi- before the digestive issues, but the problem may have actually started in the gut. Interesting. So that's, so that's, does, one, mm-hmm. so that's one, one way that we look at things differently. We look at the whole system. So when we work on helping a patient heal, we want to do things that are going to heal every system, not fix a marker on their lab work and then destroy other systems. Like a statin medication, for example, it might lower your cholesterol, but it destroys your kidneys, your muscle tissue, and your liver. So that's kind of against the core principles of nature, right? It kind of goes against our biological systems to fix one system and destroy another. It's it's just so unregulatory and so unnatural. Well, that's, you know, to be honest, I've found it, there's such irony in that, isn't it? Because the whole, you're meant to take an oath which says first do no harm, and yet a lot of the medications that are prescribed do a lot of harm. I mean, I've had people on my podcast talk about the severe debilitating issues they got just from taking simple painkillers um, after 10 years. So I, I do find it interesting that while we say first do no harm, pretty much all of the um, strong prescribed medicines out there have huge side effects and are destroying other parts of the body while perhaps fixing the one or two symptoms 
painkillers are a great example of that. I mean, we know we've got an epidemic there. So when you talk about fixing the whole body, how does functional medicine do that? What's your approach? Um, Well, the approach is really first you listen to the patient and you take a very careful history. So our, our process starts, you know, before the patient even comes into the office. Our secret weapon is that we listen. And listening is free. It doesn't cost you anything. And it doesn't involve this crazy fancy testing or technology. If you listen to the patient, you're going to be able to predict 80 to 90% of what's going on with them. And when a person comes into our office and they complain about having high stress, they can't sleep at night, their relationships suck, their job is stressful, they have financial stress, they have aging parents, I can predict what should happen because I understand the physiology. I understand the impact of these things on human physiology. So it should be no surprise to me when somebody says, I've got this, 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 and this, because I can, I can, the body doesn't work randomly. The body works in a very coordinated fashion, right? So we understand how the body works. I mean, that's what textbooks help us do and observation helps us do. What we aren't taught is how to control the body. We aren't taught, it's like, it's like teaching somebody, uh, it's, it's like putting somebody behind the wheel of a car and they've never driven a car before, right? Mm. If you tra- if you train them and you teach them what the signs on the road and everything mean, then guess what? They can naturally become better drivers. And with practice, they become better drivers. But if you never teach them how to become better drivers and all the features and bells and whistles that our body has and all the little tools that it has to heal and regenerate itself, I mean, how can you ever f- help anyone fix themselves? It's utterly impossible. Mm. So true. We don't have a manual. We're certainly not taught the manual. We're, we're taught bits and pieces in biology classes, but certainly not with the angle of how to have perfect health. It's more kind of organ-based um, studying. So why do you think we are getting sicker as a nation? I mean, you know, as you heard the statistics, we are absolutely getting sicker to the point where diabetes has tripled in the last 20 years. What do you think is the cause? Well, I think the main cause is People just don't get enough rest, they don't get enough sunlight, and they have a lot of stress. So we're missing, we're missing some very core biological requirements, like movement. Mm. We're missing uh, adequate amounts of rest. Most people sleep way less than they used to. As a, as a society, we're sleeping about three and a half hours less than we used to before the light bulb was invented. You know, some people need more sleep than others, but our biology in terms of light exposure has really been drastically altered. And every single organism on the sun regulates its biology with the sunrise and the sunset, except human beings. So this, this environmental mismatch and basically what it does is it it changes the rate at which our body heals. So our cortisol levels stay higher longer. And as a result of that, the more we produce cortisol, the less we produce melatonin. Melatonin is known as our sleep hormone, but it's also part of our immune system. So we only heal when we're in deep states of rest. And anything that interferes with that process creates a healing debt. So if you're staying longer with higher levels of cortisol, you're also uh, increasing blood sugar because cortisol's main function in biology is to raise, is to raise blood sugar. So when somebody comes in and they have high stress and they have high blood sugar, I'm not shocked that you're supposed to. That's, that's the effect that cortisol has on you. That's the effect that stress has. Is it's, it's a biological requirement to raise blood sugar when you're under stress because when you're under stress, you normally you'd be being chased by a lion or there'd be a life or death situation. Now we have this, you know, this lion, this invisible lion chasing us 
but our brain doesn't know the difference. So cortisol and catecholamine levels stay high, so blood sugar levels stay high. Interesting. So to a large extent, you believe, and I think functional medicine says this too, which is that if you just rest more, Ariana Huffington's written a book on this, and get some more sunshine, um, like the rest of the planet does, um, that and, and sort of manage your stress using all the different tools that are out there for managing stress, that the body should heal far better than what it's doing in your current state. Is, is that a fair statement? Yeah, um, that's all it knows how to do. Your body no, only knows how to heal. It doesn't know how to destroy it. So even when it's producing symptoms, symptoms are your body's way of telling you that you need to change what you're doing. It's communicating to you. It's a language. That's what symptoms are. And I do want to add to what you said about managing stress. I don't believe in stress management because that's like getting better at putting out fires, but lighting the carpet on fire every day and just getting better at putting out the fire. What you really want to do is you want to stop lighting these fires. And so when we, when <laughs> we experience true. stress, yeah. when, we, when we experience stress, uh, so stress is basically the perception of our environment or the perception of our thoughts. And that every thought that we have in every environment that we perceive, every smell that comes in, sound that comes in, uh, you know, every visual input that comes in has to go through a part of our brain called the amygdala. The amygdala is where we store our fear and anxiety. And so that part of the brain gets information before the logical prefrontal cortex part of our brain, which is what makes us human, and so when we, when we experience something that's a stressor, our brain decides for us before we can consciously decide if this is a stressful response or not, because that's how protective it is in the terms of a fight or flight, life or death situation. It, it, doesn't, it can't wait for you to decide. It's already decided for you that this is stressful. So what people have to do is instead of getting better at managing that, because now you're fighting with the chemistry of your body, if you, uh, if you change the perception of that stressor, and you don't initiate a stress response in the first place, that's the actual solution. So you don't want to have a super crazy, you know, hectic lifestyle and then do yoga and, and meditation for half an hour a day and think you're doing yourself a favor. You have to change what happens between your yoga sessions and meditation sessions and how you handle it if you're going to expect any results. And how do you change that perception? Because this is something that I can personally relate with. Um, lead a very busy life as an entrepreneur and then do yoga and meditation and think I'm doing a great job. You're just correcting me and saying not true. Uh, so, so how do I change what's happening in between and how do I change my perception so my amygdala doesn't think I'm being chased by a lion? The most effective way, the fastest way is hypnosis. Hmm. So hypnosis puts you in a trance-like state. It's not what you see in cartoons and stuff. And I actually did a whole interview on this. And I, I believe that there's an agenda to basically suppress this information because it's so easy. And you can see transformations happen in people in a couple of days. So when you reprogram the subconscious, then everything you look at, every single area of your life that you look at changes. So wow. that's... That's more important than your nutrition. You know, there's people that eat really healthy and, and still feel like crap. And there's people that eat like yes. crap and feel healthy because yes. it's, it's, all, it's, all, it's not about the mechanics. Health isn't about mechanics first. First, it's about emotions first and mechanics second because the emotions control the mechanics. So, wow, you just answered the question of, wait, how does that 80-year-old guy drink, smoke, party really hard and still be so fit or how does that guy how did that guy hit a hundred hit a century 
while being someone who drank every night and smoked? And I think you just answered that question, which is he probably handled his emotions a lot better than someone like me who ended up with colon cancer at 35 despite being supposedly a very healthy, vegetarian, non-drinking, thin Asian woman. Mm-hmm. Um, which has been a mystery to me, like, why? That makes no sense. But I, you just clarified that if you can handle and and I think emotions are clearly one of the things that we don't necessarily, we're not necessarily taught to to manage or to to really transform, I think is what you're saying, is transform how you perceive the world. When you talk about hypnosis, Sachin, where do you get this hypnosis? Are there YouTube videos? Is this something you go to a hypnosis practitioner? Is there a list of such practitioners? Yeah, so I don't know if there's a list, but, you know, you, it's probably always best to get a referral from somebody. I have a, we have a hypnotherapist that actually works in our practice now. And, you know, she helps. You have to really, like, you have to really trust this person. That's one thing I should say, because you're going to be in a very suggestive state. And uh, you want to know that that person who's rewriting your code, like just like you'd want to know if right. somebody was going to re- rewrite the operating system on your MacBook before they did that, you'd want to know that this person was legit, right? Um, so you have to first trust that person. And then there's usually an introductory session, and then there could be several other sessions after that, depending on how much code needs to be rewritten, so to speak. And so a lot of our, a lot of our adult problems manifest from our childhood problems. Mm-hmm. So that's where you have to go back to. You have to kind of go back to that inner child and see how that inner child is showing up in your adult life and creating a mismatch uh, in your emotional health. And it's amazing the transformation that takes place. And I know a lot of your followers might be of East Asian uh, descent, but there's, and there's a lot of that in that community because there's a lot of pressure on our generation uh, from our parents. Yeah. And a lot of people, you know, they, a lot, a lot of people who are my age and my culture, my generation, are trying to live a life that their parents wanted the, them, them to live right. for them. Absolutely. <laughs> and so now they're realizing that maybe I didn't want to be an accountant. You know, this and we're of proud of that. We're proud of pressuring our kids to do what we wanted to do and not what they want to do. Right. <laughs> exactly. And it, it was, but I think it was the first generation of people to realize that money isn't where happiness comes from, right? right. It's when we didn't, mm-hmm. it's when our parents didn't have money that, that they thought that's where their happiness would come from now that they do. And it's not an issue so much, so to speak, then yeah. we realize that's not where happiness comes from. And I think a lot of illness also arises from people not doing work that they feel is meaningful and dreading every day and dreading every Sunday night and Monday morning, you know, that's a big contributor to illness. Yeah, isn't it that I think Monday is the number one day for heart attacks is what I've heard and sort of yeah. does make sense. It's like, I'd rather die than go to work this morning. Uh, <laughs> and bam, your, your your body delivers it to you. So, uh, you know, we, we you talked about sort of the sleep and the um, and obviously rest and, and um, sunlight. What about gut? There's a lot of very famous people who've been quoted as saying all diseases begin in the gut. Uh, back to the question of why are we getting sicker and sicker? Do you believe that there is any component of this that's food related? And where do you come out on the whole GMO organic side of the, of the um, argument? So, I mean, I I believe that we should be eating food in its most natural state, uh, locally grown if possible uh, in the, of course the healthiest soils. I mean, that seems so obvious that we shouldn't have to fight for that or argue for that. Uh, 
if you study the way glyphosate, which is one of the active ingredients, one of the many active ingredients, I should say, in Roundup, which is sprayed on GMO-ready crops, and it's also sprayed on non-GMO-ready crops. So one thing that Indian people need to kind of realize is that chickpeas and lentils are heavily sprayed by Roundup. And so a lot of people who are eating the same diet they used to eat many years ago, the quote-unquote healthy diet that their parents and grandparents ate and did fine with, is not the same because what's changed is the amount of chemicals that are in the actual food. So even somebody who's eating at home, eating a traditional healthy diet, an Indian diet, vegetarian diet, they're getting loaded with all these chemicals. Uh, Wheat is also sprayed with glyphosate. So you take the average Indian meal, which is a flatbread uh, with maybe some chickpeas, right, and then lentil soup, Mm -hmm. and then rice, you're getting basically a whole storm of glyphosate in in in, in your meal. So this is why you're seeing multi-generational problems in health. You know, when something affects every generation, when kids are getting sicker, teenagers are getting sicker, the um, adults are getting sicker, the grandparents are getting sicker, when everyone's getting sicker, then it's always a systemic problem. And food is systemic. Our environment is systemic, right? Our air quality, water quality, food quality, those are systemic things. So when that degrades, it degrades the health of the entire population, regardless of what age you are. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing a decay in every single uh, segment, every single avatar in the health space is uh, their health is decaying. Mm -hmm. Digestion is really important. And as I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, there's so many, the the whole Crohn's colitis epidemic is, is insane. And, you know, add to that, I think we have the highest increase in, um, uh, Pepto-Bismol and things to help with heartburn. I mean, look at how many ads on TV are just for heartburn. Mm-hmm. Give us give us a little primer on digestion because, frankly, even I didn't realize until like eight months into my research that if that gas and bloating meant that I wasn't absorbing all that wonderful pro- organic produce that I was spending lots of money on, um, that absorption was far more important. And if I wasn't absorbing, then I might as well stop buying organic food. Give us a primer on digestion, sort of digestion 101. Sure, absolutely. So the first thing with digestion is the first aspect is food quality. So you always want to eat the highest quality food that you can afford. The next aspect for food is timing and dose. So how much you're going to eat because you can only digest, you know, for the most part so much in one meal. And the third part is micronutrition. So food quality comes first. You want to eat the best food that you can afford. And then you want to make sure that that food volume is appropriate. So the thing with with digestion is it's like a car wash. Every step in digestion requires uh, that it's done. And it it relies on the previous step being done. So the brushes rely on the soap being applied. The soap relies on the water being applied. So every step is important. And every step is unique. And every step relies on the previous step. So the first step in digestion is the visual aspect of your food, the smell of your food, interacting with your food. So even if you just spend a minute looking at the colors of your of your plate, that sends a signal to your brain of what type of nutrition is actually coming. And the brain can start preparing uh, based on its understanding of food over all these years you've eaten, what type of enzyme production is required. The smell gives us information. And then as we're eating our meal, we should be in neutral, which means just like when you go through the car wash, you put the car in neutral. So we shouldn't be on our phones. We shouldn't be checking email. We shouldn't be pacing around back and forth. We should be mm. in neutral. So mentally and emotionally, you know, we can we need to settle into that meal because 
when we're under stress, we're not sending blood to our digestive system. This is a concept we call autonomic pairing. Where I send blood is where I send function. When I'm stressed out, I'm sending blood to the arms and legs because the function requires me to run away. When I'm digesting my meal, I send blood to the digestive system because that's where this nutrition and this function is required. It's required in the gut. When I'm stressed, I'm not sending blood to the gut. So this is where there's an autonomic mismatch. So our chemistry doesn't match the physical task that we're trying to accomplish. Just like if you're sitting on the couch, you don't want the chemistry of a marathon runner in your blood right now. You want, the, you want the chemistry of somebody who's sitting on a couch relaxing. So we always have to have this pairing. And so stress and digestion are mismatches when it comes to our physiology and the task that we're trying to accomplish. So you always have to be in neutral. Chewing your food is also very critical. So the plant cell, if you go back to biology 101, the plant cell is made out of cellulose. And cellulose requires an enzyme called cellulase in order to be digested. The human stomach doesn't make cellulase. So animals like cows do. They make the enzymes to digest through the plant wall, whereas human beings don't. So we have to physically break open that cell wall, which means we have to chew our food. So if you're a vegetarian, you need to make sure you're really, really chewing your food because the only way you can unlock the nutrition in those plant cells is by physically breaking open the cell wall. So chewing your food is critical. It also helps you taste your food better, which then signals to your brain the fat, protein, and carbohydrate ratio of that meal. This is why artificial flavoring really screws up the body's ability to digest food because you're tricking the tongue and the brain. And, the, and then when the food arrives, it's not what it's supposed to be. It's not what your body was expecting. So it made the wrong sequence of enzymes. So then what we have to do is we have to make sure we don't drink too much fluid. When you drink too much fluid with your meals, you dilute the enzymes that your stomach is working so hard to make. The acidity of your stomach is a million times more acidic than your blood. So it takes a lot of energy to make stomach acid. And so if you drink a lot of fluid with your meal, you're essentially diluting that stomach acid. That stomach acid sterilizes the contents of the food that you're having because food is loaded with bacteria. So parasites, bacteria, microbes, yeast, stuff like that, the acid would normally dissolve and kill. And so it serves as an antibacterial you know, soup, if you will. What that also does is it activates enzymes in your stomach that help you digest your proteins. So protein maldigestion is what leads to food sensitivities. The only way a food protein can end up in your bloodstream is if you A, didn't digest the protein, and B, if you have a leaky gut. So when people get tested for food sensitivities and allergies, it's a sign of one of those two things. Certainly, if it's in their bloodstream, they're not digesting it. So if you don't digest proteins, they become potential allergens. Your body's immune system does not create an immune response to fats or carbohydrates. It creates an immune response and only can create an immune response to proteins that are longer than three three amino acid peptides. So this is why protein digestion is so critical. So if somebody's stressed out, if they're not chewing their food, they're not going to make enough stomach acid. The protein is not going to digest properly. And when protein doesn't digest properly, it putrefies and rots inside your stomach and intestinal tract, which then creates gas and bloating. But it also creates a biological uh, fuel for bacteria. So this is where you know people start getting a lot of gas and bloating because that protein serves as a substrate or food for bacteria in your colon. So this is where, so this, so so you can see where this whole process can kind of break down. You have artificial flavoring, you have artificial coloring. So you're neurologically tricking the body. People aren't chewing their food thoroughly. They're not autonomically paired with physiology for digestion because they're stressed out or checking their email or watching TV. So they're not actually in the right state physiologically. They, they may not chew their food thoroughly enough. 
to taste it properly or to then increase the surface area enough through the mastication process and break open those cell walls so their food is not fully being ex- extractable from, from a nutritional standpoint. And then, you know, once the food gets into the stomach, it needs to be properly acidified and the enzymes cannot be diluted by drinking excessive fluids. And then once that happens, it goes into the small intestine where then the pancreas and the gallbladder take their, uh, take their turns. The pancreas is responsible for helping you digest your carbohydrates and the gallbladder is responsible for helping you digest fats. The gallbladder's little sac, it makes, it doesn't make bile, it stores bile. And then when you have a fatty meal, it squeezes to get those uh, toxins essentially out of your body. So our body makes bile from toxins that the body is getting rid of. So it's, it's kind of this cool process that the body does uh, to turn waste into something beneficial. And then that bile helps us digest our fats. Then that goes into the small, further along the small intestine where now nutrients are then assimilated and pulled in through the, the cell or the wall of the intestinal tract. Now, if the intestinal tract is inflamed, then proteins that shouldn't normally get through start getting through. It's kind of like a mosquito net with holes in it. So if the mosquitoes are on one side of the net, that's all good. But if, once they start getting through through the net, then, you know, our immune system has to take over. Our immune system is like, okay, what is this mosquito or what is this protein doing here? It's not supposed to be here. It mounts an immune response. Sets off an alarm in the immune system where now systemically, remember, the same blood goes everywhere. So you don't create an isolated response. You create a systemic response. So now wherever there's a similar looking protein, the immune system is going to attack. A lot of food proteins look similar to our own tissue proteins. So for example, gluten looks very similar to the thyroid. Gluten also looks very similar to the cerebellum. So if somebody has a gluten sensitivity and they're eating that food and the immune system is reacting to it because their gut barrier is leaky, then every time they have gluten, their immune system is going to also attack their thyroid and their cerebellum, which is the base of the brain. And so there's a lot of foods that look very similar to our own tissues in our body. And that's where autoimmunity starts, um, you know, becoming an issue. So we want to maintain a healthy gut barrier. We do that by maintaining a healthy microbiome. The microbiome comprises about 99% of our genetic information. So only 1% of your DNA is human DNA. The the other 99% of it is actually bacterial DNA. So you have more... Yeah. Well, it is, right? And so where you get that microbiome from is a combination of two things. It's a combination of your uh, the way you were born. So if you're a vaginal birth, which is the healthiest way to be born, if you will, then the, the microbiome of the mother is transferred to the baby through the vaginal fluids as, as the baby is going through the digest or through the um, birth canal. That's the first meal that we have. So speaking of digestion, our first meal is actually bacteria from the mother's uh, vaginal area. And so oh, wow. what happens is that that bacteria will make up 99% of that person's genetic information. And that is passed on from generation to generation to generation to generation. So that's actually your, your legacy. That's your genetic legacy in that bacteria. And so the majority of our genetic information comes from that microbiome. And, and then wow. we have our hardwired DNA. And so the way these two forms of DNA interact is what basically determines ultimately our health, right? So right. these bacteria um, are, there's over 500 different species and they keep discovering more and more. We still don't fully understand this. Anyone who tells you they do is lying to you. So we still don't fully understand it. It's so complicated. It's like the stars. We'll never understand the cosmos, right? And that's part of the mystery of life. But what we do know is that healthier foods, um, you know, plant-based foods, 
are going to be healthier for these gut bacteria. Processed foods, refined foods, artificial sweeteners, stuff like that disrupts this bacteria. Antibiotics disrupt this bacteria, which means it essentially disrupts our genetic composition. Now, the other thing that influences this bacteria is the actual food that we eat. So the food that we eat is what feeds the bacteria. They actually get first crack at the food that we eat because they live inside the tube. They live inside the digestive system. Food only provides us nourishment when it crosses into the bloodstream. So bacteria actually eat our food first. We get their leftovers, okay? So the variety of foods that we eat is proportional to the variety of the types of bacterial strains that we'll have in our digestive tract, which means that it's always better to eat a variety of foods instead of eating the same foods over and over and over again, because you want to feed different types of bacteria to add diversity, just like you would to your stock portfolio. You want to add diversity to your microbiome portfolio. Wow. So many questions. First one, digestive enzymes. Um, are you for them? Are you against them? Because as you describe the digestive process, the enzymes are so important in making sure that the proteins are being digested. What are your thoughts on that? So I, I would practice good digestion hygiene first, like maybe doing some, you know, a minute or two of deep breathing, minimizing fluid intake, maybe changing up your environment, you know, stop eating at your desk, put your electronics away, be more mindful, chew your food. I would do all those things that I just talked about first mm -hmm. before I give somebody an enzyme. Now, there's no such thing as over digesting your meal. So if you're unsure or if you want to kind of give yourself a little boost or insurance policy, then yeah, you can take some digestive enzymes. There's no harm in it. But I don't want people to think that their digestive system is broken if it's their behavior that's broken. Right, right. And then we're back to the, I don't want to fix me. I just want to take a Band-Aid. And so I'll still right. eat not at my any, desk on the phone, difference. but I'll take a digestive enzyme. And what most people don't know is that most, most supplement companies are owned by pharmaceutical companies. So you're just, you're just actually paying more for supplements than you are for drugs. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Okay, next question. What do you think about uh, probiotic supplements? So given how important um, the bacteria are, do you recommend probiotics on a consistent basis, once a year? What are your thoughts on that? Um, you know what? Probiotics, you want to get naturally through foods. So fermented foods are a great source of probiotics. And here's the thing with probiotics. Probiotics are like seeds. You have to provide an environment for them to actually want to grow in, right? Just because you throw a bunch of seeds on dirt, it doesn't mean they're going to grow. If you nurture the soil and you provide the right environment for those seeds to grow, they're much more likely to. Most probiotics taken have a transient effect, which means when you stop taking them, the benefit goes away. And that's because most people aren't changing the actual terrain for them to grow their own bacteria. Now, keep in mind, there's 500 different species of bacteria, and we still don't fully understand them. So simply taking a probiotic is too myopic at this point because there's so little that we actually know. And to, right. to bank everything on a probiotic just doesn't make sense to me. I, I would say that it's good for people to take spores. Spores actually change the way the gut terrain behaves. It changes the inflammation of the gut barrier. It promotes a healthier environment for natural, healthy bacteria to grow in. So the idea is for you to grow your own bacteria, not to have to keep taking them exogenously, because in a healthy gut, the bacteria replicates itself. And so what is that, that we need to do to make sure we have a healthy terrain? 
Uh, well, of course, obviously eat healthy. Another one is the, the probiotic that we recommend, the spore-based microbe that we recommend is called Megaspore. So that's that's good at improving the terrain. Another good nutrient for the gut is glutamine. Glutamine is excellent. Essential fats like fish oil can be very important because they help modulate inflammation in the gut lining. And, you know, there's depending on what's going on with the person, if they have an H. pylori infection or if they've got a yeast overgrowth, you can give different herbs uh, and in some cases even medications, prescription medications to knock out these bacterial or fungal or pathogenic overgrowths that people might have. So really the first step when we work with clients is that we actually test their digestive system. So we have a test. It's a single sample stool collection, and it gives us a five-page report on their digestive function. So what they get is a look at what type of microbes they have, what the ratios of these microbes are, what type of immune response they're having in the gut lining, because if if the gut's inflamed, it could be because of a chronic immune response. We also test them for gluten sensitivity. Uh, We test them for pathogenic microbes, yeast overgrowth, and parasites. And so that gives us a baseline, right? If you've got a problem there, then, and you have digestive symptoms, you got to fix that. What most people get when they see a doctor is they get a physical scan for a biological problem. So you're not going to see this dysfunction or imbalance in bacteria and pathogen growth at a microscopic level on a camera, right? You have to approach the whole problem differently. So when you go and get a GI scope done, first of all, they can only look to the stomach. They can't go into the small intestine because that's a closed system and they can't, uh, so, and that's 20 feet of it. So the majority of your digestive system is in your small intestine, which we can't put a camera in. So we're missing 80% of, of where the problem usually is. And so there's functional lab testing that can use stool to measure the microbes, and you can also do something called a SIBO breath test, which measures uh, the production of hydrogen or methane gas, which is what causes IBS and bloating. So if somebody has bloating, it's because, you know, if it's in the upper GI, you can burp it out. If it's in lower GI, you can fart it out. But the small intestine is a closed system, so the gas just keeps building until it finally passes into the large intestine. And this is where a lot of people have what we call food babies, right? They eat something and they look like they're pregnant. And it's because that gas just keeps growing and growing. And it's usually a sign of methane or hydrogen producing bacteria that doesn't belong there. One of the reasons, interestingly enough, is because we sit on a toilet when we go to the bathroom. It's actually anatomically more appropriate to squat when you go to the bathroom. Right. And that's why I have a squatty potty in my home. But with with the the sitting position, we actually put a lot of back pressure. And so uh, fecal matter from the large intestine goes backwards into the small intestine, and then that bacteria starts overgrowing. So bacteria itself isn't a problem, but when the wrong bacteria is in the wrong place, then it's a problem. Very interesting. What about You mentioned inflammation so many times. we got to talk about it. Gut inflammation has been called the secret killer by Time magazine. What do you recommend? So first of all, what are the symptoms? How does someone even know they have gut inflammation? And then typically, what do you recommend? What are the two top three things that someone can do if they have those symptoms of gut inflammation to help ease it? Sure. So I would say that, you know, gut inflammation is very interesting. It's a function of many things. It's a function of food. It's a function of the additives that's in our foods. It's a function of our stress levels. And it's a function of our microbiome, which is a huge part of our overall health and wellness. And I, and I think that the majority of people's issues in the digestive tract start because 
they, you know, they don't eat real food anymore, right? And mm-hmm. the food is not always prepared with the same intention that it once used to be. We view food as being an inconvenience. Mm-hmm. You know, it's food. Food is sacred. Sure so, we, mm-hmm. yeah. So, so the energy we t- attach around food has an impact on how we're going to digest it. The intention that we have. What is that fuel? What is that food fueling? Right? Are you going? Are you eating healthy and then going to a job you hate? Is that what you're using that energy for? Or are you using that energy for to do something that you love, right? Like you gave up some of the things that you're doing so you could do something that you love. And that is transformative when it comes to people's health. Your your solar plexus, from a chakra standpoint, um, is is where we store fear and anxiety. And so people who live in, in who live anxiously or people who live in fear generally will have a tendency to have digestive issues because, again, we're not sending blood uh, to that area. So what I tell most people to do is, you know, don't try to fix your digestive system. Try to fix everything because you'll get way better outcomes. And it's actually way easier to fix everything than it is to myopically try to fix your digestive system. So one of the things that we might see or experience when we have digestive issues is non-digestive issues, which means that people might have skin issues. They might have dry skin, that could be a sign of poor fat absorption, okay? People might have joint pain, that could be a sign of intestinal permeability. People might be forgetful because when you have a leaky gut, you have a leaky brain, right? People might get headaches or migraines. A lot of times digestive issues don't symptomize themselves in the gut. Keep in mind that your digestive system doesn't have a lot of pain receptors, right? So when you have food going through you, you don't feel it. You don't feel your digestive systems working and your organs squeezing and doing all that work, right? right? Because that's not a sensory organ. So pain is a sensory phenomenon. And so we shouldn't experience pain in the digestive system until there's a really big problem. So what our body tries to do is it says, hey, you know, let, let, me, let me indicate to you that there's a problem by making you feel not so good. And then you've got to go... And then you, so it's, it's a way of our body for it to communicate to us. A lot of digestive issues develop on the skin first, okay? And you'll see people with acne, psoriasis, eczema. That's always a digestive issue. So if you look at the skin where, where your cheek meets your mouth, I mean, it's a continuous barrier, right? It's, it's all part of the same tissue, if you will, to, uh, to a certain degree. And so our skin is a continuous barrier, just like our digestive internally is a continuous barrier. So a lot of times the symptoms will show up there physically first. Oh, very interesting. Let's talk about some of your case studies. Um, clearly, you're doing something something right. But let's talk about diabetes first. Um, apparently, it's tripled in the last two decades. Mm-hmm. Do you believe it's digestion-related? And can you talk a little bit about a case study where you've been able to help someone recover from diabetes and live without meds? Because that's the big thing with diabetes is it's a pretty painful, painful long-term um, prison sentence, so to speak. Yeah, and unfortunately, it doesn't get painful until much later. And so a lot of people will ignore it because they feel like they can control it with medications. Now, first and foremost, diabetes is not a blood sugar problem. High blood sugar is a symptom of diabetes. Diabetes is an insulin problem. So we want to focus on how do we regulate insulin appropriately to regulate blood sugar properly, not how do we regulate blood sugar, because that in and of itself is, may not be the actual problem. One of the things that I mentioned earlier is that the main hormone to regulate blood sugar that we have is cortisol. Cortisol raises blood sugar. 
stress raises cortisol, which means that if we're chronically stressed, and sometimes it could be mental and emotional, sometimes it could be physical, sometimes it could be chemical, whatever raises our cortisol raises our blood sugar. So we have to lower that first. And inflammation also raises uh, cortisol and cortisone. And so looking for hidden sources of inflammation uh, would be very important. I have an interesting case study. We had a guy who came to see us, named William, and he came in to see us. His blood sugar was at 248. And he was on medications. He was doing everything right, eating healthy, uh, extra, trying to exercise as best he could. Doctors kept switching out his medications, couldn't get his blood sugar under control. When he came to see us, we did a stool test on him. He had a parasite. When we got rid of the parasite, his blood sugars naturally came down. In four months, he lost 70 pounds. And at oh, six wow. months, he lost, he lost 100 pounds. And he took up boxing and his blood sugar and his hemoglobin A1C came back to normal. And it's because we got rid of the, the source of the actual problem instead of just trying to band-aid the problem. Are you telling me that a parasite caused someone's obesity and diabetes issues? Well, here's the thing. The, the parasite or the pathogen is what causes chronic inflammation. Chronic inflammation causes a chronic elevation in cortisol. Cortisol causes a chronic elevation in blood sugar and decreases insulin receptor sensitivity. So I would never say, I don't believe in naming diseases, right? Because that cortisol is not just causing diabetes type issues, it's causing a whole bunch of other issues. It's suppressing the immune system, it's decreasing testosterone production, it's decreasing his sleep and restoration, it's causing decreased blood flow to the digestive tract. So it's all of those things that are happening at the same time because cortisol doesn't just affect one system, it affects every system in the body. So you would never fix people in isolation because they don't, you don't get sick in isolation, right? Somebody right. who has diabetes doesn't just have diabetes. Right, right. That's so it sounds like... For. It's important to test if someone has diabetes or any other chronic illness. It sounds like what you're saying is it's really important to get tested for cortisol as well as inflammation markers. Is, is that one of the things that you do when you first see a patient? Yeah, we'll, we'll, take, we'll look, take a look at their metabolized and unmetabolized cortisol levels so we can see if this process is related to me- mental and emotional stress or inflammatory stress. And so we can get a pretty good sense of you know, where and where in the spectrum this person is and what's going on with them. But even with a good history, with a good history, you'll figure out if somebody has high stress. If you ask somebody how their stress level is and they say normal, that means it's high. And if they take a deep (laughs) sigh, then it's high. Right. And that's what most people will do. Right. Right. What about, let's talk about a case study for Crohn's colitis. How have you helped someone recover from that? Sure. We actually just did a, we do something called Living Proof TV every week. And a couple of weeks ago, we had a case study. Uh, his name's Damien, young man. And, uh, you know, he was diagnosed with colitis and went to all kinds of different doctors. We put him on Remicade and he did, he did seem to get relief, but he was getting a lot of side effects from the medications. And his mom finally brought him in to see us reluctantly um, because she wasn't sure if this would work. But she finally, you know, trusted the process and it made sense to her. It was logical. And when we tested his stool, he had major yeast overgrowth. And, you know, that was causing a lot of his gut inflammation. He also had a couple of parasite, parasite overgrowths as well. And actually, if you watch the video, uh, we actually share his lab results uh, on there. So maybe I'll share a link with you. But there's. Do. But once we got rid of that and we cleaned up his diet, his acne disappeared, his dry skin disappeared, 
his psoriasis disappeared, which he also had, and his colitis disappeared. Everything disappeared. That's incredible. We are coming close to an end, so I'm going to have to stop asking you more questions, even though I have so many more. I'm going to make sure that we put some of those links, um, such in our show notes, for those that are interested in uh, following up with you. Do you offer, by the way, remote consults with your team? Yeah, so people can connect with our team if they go to www.iamproof.com. What I'm actually going to start doing is, is weekly kind of Q&As so that people can learn more about the actual process that we go through, and it's a live Q&A that I do. So they, they can uh, register for something like that, or they can register to set up a, a phone consultation with somebody from our team. And uh, we're happy to answer any questions they have, see if they're a good fit, or maybe just guide them along their journey. Uh, we also have a free program called 30 and 30 and it's 30in30.org and it's a free 30-day program that anyone can go through and it gives I just give away my 30 best tips on how they can you know how anyone who's listening can start implementing healthy practices on a daily basis. Oh, that's fantastic we're going to include all of those links in our show notes. One last question for those listening in today that say like me I want to stay healthy forever I don't ever want to fall sick again and when I go I want to just go. I just want to pop dead one morning. I do not want to go through the medical system and, and be stuck with prescription meds and needles and procedures. What are the five critical must do or die recommendations that you have for people like me and those those listening to our podcast? Yeah, so the five things, is, it's pretty easy. These are big, big uh, boulders. And here, here's what I'll tell you. There's no reason to live long and pain-free if you don't love the life you're living. So that first and foremost is, is super, super important is to do meaningful work, to have a sense of purpose and a sense of validation and appreciation. You should wake up every morning and go to bed every night having something to look forward to and something to be proud of. So that's the first thing. I would start there for most people. The next one is sleep. So your sleep is when you heal and regenerate and repair. You want to make sure you're getting adequate amounts of sleep and you're aligned with your circadian rhythm which is the second thing. Circadian rhythm is our biological clock. So it aligns with the rising and setting of the sun. So sun exposure at critical times of the day, like sunrise and sunset and midday are very important in regulating our circadian biology. Um, Our circadian biology is paired with our blood sugar regulation. And those two things are probably the two biggest pillars when it comes to health. The other one is community. So having a strong sense of community, when you study blue zones, people who lived the longest had community. They didn't have gyms. They didn't have organic restaurants. I mean, the food was naturally organic. You know, they didn't have a lot of the things that we think this day and age are required for us to be healthy. They didn't take the most drugs or see the most doctors. What they did was they had a profound sense of belonging and community. And that fifth thing is your relationships. You know, your relationship with yourself, your self-worth, your relationship with your family members, and your friends. So that's, again, something that's super critical. And these are the things that you won't find uh, you're able to measure on lab work, or these are things you can't supplement your your life. Uh, you can't supplement these solutions. You have to live out these solutions. Sajun, you've been great. This has been so informative. Thank you so much for everything you're doing. And everybody else, we will see you on our next podcast so you can live longer, healthier, and happier. 
That's a wrap. Share your love with a five-star review and get show notes at healthbootcamps.com. Connect with us on Health Bootcamps Facebook and Twitter. Also, don't forget to check out other great interviews and subscribe to the Get Healthier podcast today.